So welcome to actually the first Tearsheet Pro uh, webinar. Um, this is for Tearsheet Pro subscribers. And this is where we go deeper into some of the topics that are really impacting financial services. And so you have to be living in a cave not to have uh, experienced uh, maybe the excitement or the elation around finding chat GPT and, and what that's, um, for me, it really, and, and for the rest of our team, it really got the gears, our gears going. And um, I've invited on two experts to our show to basically um, separate fact from fiction and really kind of get a, get a feel for what the opportunities are in financial services as we approach these types of technologies um, and, and what, you know, maybe just sort of fantasy. So joining me on the show, um, I have got Moses Goodman, who's co-founder and CEO of ClearML. Moses brings more than 20 years of experience making visionary technologies a reality. He's a co-founder and CEO of ClearML, where he leads the teams behind the industry's only unified end-to-end -end frictionless ML ops platform. Prior to ClearML, Moses co-founded and led several startups in the computer vision and embedded processing spaces, including optical CV for 3D cinema and embedded CV startup during his PhD, the last two of which were sold. Moses is an alumnus of the IDF's 81 Elite Technology Unit. He's been granted 13 patents and has applied for an additional 27 patents in the field of machine learning. He's been published in five academic journals. Moses is a graduate of Tel Aviv University with a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in Computer Science. Welcome, Moses. Thank you. And Dev Patnaik is also joining us. He's the CEO of Jump Associates, the leading independent strategy and innovation firm. He's a board member of Conscious Capitalism. Dave has been a trusted advisor to CEOs at some of the world's most admired companies, including Starbucks, Target, Target, Nike, Universal, and Virgin. Dave is a frequent keynote speaker at major forums, and his writing has appeared in Business Week, Forbes, Fast Company, and many others. He's the author of the book, Wired to Care, named one of the best books of the year by both Fast Company and Business Week. Malcolm Gladwell called Wired to Care, quote, just what we need for the lean years ahead. When not at Jump, Dave's also an adjunct professor at Stanford University, where he teaches social science methods to MBA and design students. Welcome, Dave. Nice to be here. Uh, maybe even before we jump into the question, uh, into the questions we prepared, I'm kind of curious um, how both of you uh, experienced sort of chat GPT moving into the zeitgeist and, and, and this, this really overwhelming excitement about um, what the future of AI portends. Maybe we'll start with you, Dave. You know, I, I was amazed by uh, ChatGPT uh, in its 3.5 release when we all got to see it. And, and I know uh, what is particularly impressive is that some of that technology had been sitting on the shelf for a little while, then they decided to pull it forward, dust it off, and and get it ready for human consumption. Uh, but, you know, even for for our talk today, the you know, just to prepare for this yesterday, I, I just asked Chat GPT, you know, tell me the biggest, you know, things uh, so why AI is great. Tell me the biggest challenges that are going to be there. And then, you know, tell tell me the biggest reasons you think that financial service CEOs will will think that they don't need to worry about AI or chat GPT. And it and it spot out just a, a really nice primer. Right. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that point. I should pay attention to, to that. It didn't tell me anything surprising, but it, it got me at a baseline. Right. So, so there you have it. I'm awesome. It, it helped you with your homework. It helped, it helped me. If I want to understand AI, you know, maybe I should just ask the AI, help me understand AI. Very meta. Moses, let, let's just jump in. Do you think that ChatGPT and, and, and technologies like that will have a big impact on the financial services industry? I think it will have impact on every industry. 
I think it's probably the easiest interface to interact with large corpuses of uh, knowledge base. I think it's uh, like 10 years ago, it was all, I think that you mentioned it before, Zach, like it's all bots that's just have like a bot that does something, blah, blah, blah. And then the technology, I mean, there was a promise. Right, it wasn't quite uh, there, the technology, right? Yeah. And, but it never matured enough to be good as a product, like an actual product you want to use. And I think that the huge jump that we saw in the last couple of years made that technology available. And now what we were promised 10 years ago is a reality, which is really sci-fi. And I think that it'll just find its way throughout the entire industry as a better way to interact with a lot of information that is usually very hidden behind uh, whether these are websites or documentations or maybe some uh, regulations. It's just a, a lot better at summarizing a lot of very complex information for you and making that accessible. And the interface is it's awesome. Just asking and getting a result in human language, that's uh, something that we've dreamed about for years and now it's a reality. Yeah, I know that's one of my favorite things is just refining uh, the questions I'm asking, learning how to ask a question. I think there's going to be you know skill acquisition around that. Dave, what do you think? What do you, will there be an impact here on financial services? I think it's it's already having an impact, right? If if you you talk to any uh, financial services firm of of any size, they have had folks with PhDs in AI already working in their organization for a few years now. The biggest difference was they were ignoring those people, right? Execs were just not paying attention to them. We're saying, well, that's good, that's cute, but we're not going to give you too much money, and we're not going to have it affect our strategy at all. And so, you know, the the real value of chat GPT is that it is a form of machine learning, is a form of AI that human beings, just ordinary civilians can actually interact with and get freaked out by, right? Because it's not like hedge funds were using similar versions, earlier instantiations of this technology for some time for investing. It's not like other people weren't, you know, uh, using these models, developing these models to help figure out where a bank should spend its marketing dollars, right? It's just that the CMOs were ignoring that information <laughs> that was coming out. So it sounds like kind of what happens is um, just synthesizing what both of you said there, we've gone from like point solutions into more general solutions and it's, and it's become accessible. Um, to not just technologists, but to but to everybody. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's I, not to get too academic, but heck, you know, I moonlight as a professor at Stanford, right? Which is there's a difference between an invention and an innovation, right? Mm. An invention is something cool and new. An innovation is something cool and new that actually has a socioeconomic impact. Right. So you know, I always you know, talk about which is a bigger innovation, you know, a hovercraft or disposable diapers. Hovercrafts, you know, either they feed a biblical proportion to walk on water. Disposable diapers, it seems it's just some plastic and some tape strapped to a baby's butt. But disposable diapers are much greater innovation just in terms of how it has changed, how we raise our kids, what we do to the environment and so forth. And ChatGPT is the start of what has been happening in, in the space of invention, turning into real innovation that it's time to pay attention to. Moses, I, I think you'd probably agree with that. Yeah, I, I think it's all about the size of your target audience in terms of 
what you can approach or who can you can approach. And I think you're you're very accurate at saying that before it was mostly researchers, which is kind of a niche if you think about the financial sector. And now you have an interface that basically anyone can interact with. Knowledge base is the same, but that that has an impact. As before, someone had to make a conscious decision to use it, which statistically they didn't, as you mentioned, Dev. Um, but now when everyone can experience the potential, now become organic, those decisions, those use cases, because more people are exposed, more people can use it. And it's, it, by the way, it doesn't mean that it's easier to integrate. It's probably more complicated to actually integrate in terms of the product itself, but it becomes more tangible to decision makers and a lot of people that actually need to take part in this process. And that's that's a huge difference. Yeah, I think to your point, Moses, Microsoft's already experiencing that even in the early days of what it takes to in integrate it. Um, I, wa I want to double click on what we're talking about now. I, I don't know if either of you have read the New York Times article um, where there was a journalist who uh, ChatGPT professed love and sort of moved into this other. Oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> moved into it. this other persona um, named Sydney. Um, I think what it did is given the rapid cycle time of how everyone got excited and started using it, it just very quickly, we saw like, wow, there, there, there is, there are some, there are some dangers here and some risks, right? Like having that in a bot, uh, you know, talking to bank customers about their loan probably wouldn't really work very well for the financial service industry. So Moses, maybe we could start to talk about the risks and the opportunities here. How, how do you uh, think about Do you remember that? like at the, at the end of the um, article, Microsoft already released something. Do you remember what it was? Oh, is that so? Yes, I do remember. And people were teaching it, all kinds of anti-Semitic epithets, right? And then Microsoft basically said, okay, so the easiest fix is to basically make sure that no conversation <laughs> is longer than X because it will take you a certain amount of time until you get to, let's call it Sydney or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that was the fix. And I think that's a testament of the complexity of actually controlling mm. it. Like there is no way to just say, oh, don't get there. No, that's way too complex. So it's basically a heuristic on topic. Just assume that it'll take you a few sentences, you're limited. Every few sentences, clean slate. And this solves it when you think about conversations and when you think about- You mean you keep talking about the weather, right? It's like talking yeah, exactly. about the weather repeatedly. Like, that's enough, yeah. that's enough. <laughs> Um, but if you really want to get into it, then you will not be able to spend two hours talking to Sydney about how to take over the world, which I remember the gist of half the conversation just before uh, <laughs> confessing the love. Um, but I think that the main issue with those systems, it's it's a lot of black box and training. I mean, you know what gets in. It's very hard to control the output. Right. And for an industry that that's so regulated and needs to control it, like this is, it's somewhat dangerous, right? Even if, if this is just a bot that tells you, hey, this is your option here. Assume website of the bank, like just a customer. Where do I get to, where do I go to get a loan? And the bot needs to answer. And then the second one is, do you really need one? <laughs> Maybe that's not what the bank wants the bot to say. There's no way to limit it at the moment. Huh. And this means that it'll be very hard to integrate in terms of just for the end customer without setting very clear boundaries of what is considered okay, what isn't. Right. And, and how about you? I mean, the, the, 
the, the AI will learn this, but we will learn as well, right? How to, how to navigate this and, and how to figure out appropriate limiters, right? It's, you know, there, there's some group of people out there who are very excited. They can see the potential in, in, in these, uh, the, the, these large language models, right? And then for folks who are like, oh, this isn't that impressive, right? I, I would just say, you know, you're looking at very early days for this. It, it would be the equivalent of evaluating, you know, the promise and potential of social media by looking, you know, at Friendster, Right. And saying, well, Friendster isn't really taking I thought you were going to say MySpace, but you went there. Dave. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're still at Friendster. We have the Friendster of AI right now. Right? We, fi we finally have one that is ready to show ordinary human beings. It has, it's still a little crunchy. And, and it, you know, if I you know, talked to you back then and I said, Friendster is going to undermine our democracy. Like, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that took a few years. Interesting perspective. I like that. So, so, so let's get, talk about finance. I mean, you know, I, I've seen the data that like financial institutions, large ones, typically have about a third of their workforce. I think that's that's in the sort of compliance, regulatory, you know, work bucket. Um, and we were talking like you know, in for for big institutions, tens of thousands of people. So, what, what do compliance people to know need to know about this stuff? Moses, you talked about something before about like knowing that it's you got to cut off, you know, you can't go too deep, but like, what, what are some of the things that they should keep in their mind as they're starting to like figure this stuff out? I think that the main thing is understanding the kind of the framework itself and the borders around what you considered uh, acceptable, whatever that means. And I think that for a lot of them, it will mean that they will have to work harder. It's a lot harder to add compliance into black box systems. And at the end, this is what it is. It's relatively speaking, a, a black box system. You push data, but you don't actually understand how to control it, which means you have to be very specific in what you consider um, an acceptable output and then have that as part of, that's called the training process and have, and make sure that this is part of the feedback. And I'm, I'm, if if I'm being realistic, and I think Dev mentioned it, it's like that's the tip of the iceberg. And we're missing a lot of tools and infrastructure in order to be able to control it and move it from, oh, this is really cool, to a product that you can use and deploy without constantly looking and, and monitoring. Got it. Dave, how do you think about compliance in, in this world? Yeah, you know, I, I think that is definitely true in the near term. There's going to be a point where compliance is going to be eaten by AI, right? And, and there's a lot of different parts mm. of financial services, whether it's any sort of KYC, know your customer work, where you, you look at it and you say, you have a very clear idea of what success looks like. And you have a very clear idea of what's, you know, what, what the rules are that is fair or not. If it's that kind of decision-making, which is a lot of financial service decision-making, right? Is this loan a worthy, you know, um, uh, loan to make, right? In any of those cases, those are, those are the first jobs to go, right? And so I would be incredibly concerned just as somebody, if I was a compliance professional, Right. But even beyond that, right, particularly after 2008, 
we've had, you know, a, we're, we're, you know, you, you hear every large financial service institution complains at how much compliance and how much regulation happens. But, but at the same time, when you, when you talk to them behind the doors, they'll say, you know what, it's really great because it's kind of a competitive moat. It's such a pain in the ass. Nobody else wants to do it. We have, you know, small armies of people to do it. It's great. Who, who, who wants to come in and take our business? Google's never going to bother to really become a bank. Amazon will never become a bank. The minute all of these things can be automated, right? The minute all of these things, you know, and maybe you still have, you still have a, a smaller army of people to oversee it. But when those incredibly complicated decisions become table stakes that anybody can buy a bank in a box, right? Suddenly your competitive moat goes away. Right, all of the reasons why people should stick with you goes away, and um, and so then it goes beyond just kind of challenge to my career to kind of well challenge to my kids' college fund. I like that. You know, I, I was just piecing together something you both said, and it got me thinking about like there, it's said in financial services sometimes. I'm going off script here, but that um, certain financial products are sold, not bought. Meaning, meaning you know, there, there's an incentive to to push a product. Um, maybe that's not, you know, potentially right for, for a buyer. And so what banks want and what customers want aren't, they're not necessarily sitting at the same side of the table. So who's this bot really representing, right? Who's this AI representing? You know, Moses said, well, do I need, do I need this loan? That the answer the bank might give and the answer the customer I want to hear are not aligned necessarily. Totally, totally. I mean, this is where, and, and those kind of arguments, you will hear those all the time inside, you know, well, our products are sold, not bought, right? That's right there, you know, along with, well, you know, really our strength is in our human relationships and in, in, in our human interactions, right? Is it? You, you better make sure that it actually mm. is true, right? Depending on the sector or the subsector, there are some segments of insurance where the average career um, uh, lifespan of an agent is two years, two and wow. a half years. Meaning you join this company, you sell insurance to all your friends and family, you run out of your local market and you quit and you go do something else, right? You go be a real estate agent. How much really great advice are your people providing today, right? right. And so AI will force us to say, okay, if, if human beings are really our strength, right, we better up our game, right? And, and, and most people are, 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 are even doing that at a fairly low level of play. So- both of you guys are in the business of, of helping companies innovate. I'm kind of curious if you are hearing from executives of financial services about new tech, these new types of technologies and what you're hearing. I think that it's mostly about, and I think they've mentioned it, it's like the lowest hanging fruit, KYC, for example. Mm -hmm. Like this is the first thing you automate. It's very clear what you need to do. And it's a lot of hassle. Half of it is images and you have to do OCR and the other half is matching photos and looking through databases that's the first thing a financial institute needs to automate and these are the, or forms or uh deposits all the things that you think oh that's kind of it should have been there a long time ago but now it's mature enough and i think it's all it's all about confidence in the system and i think that for a lot of those algorithms there is the confidence is high enough for a financial institute to actually adopt because the framework is quite clear on what you're getting. And I think that's the lowest hanging fruit. And for most financial institutes, that's where they are, are at, at the moment. I think it's they, they still have a long way to go until they embrace 
large language models as a way to interact with data, even internally, because the cost of understanding that you got the wrong answer, way too high. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about in, internally facing, and that 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 is important. Important, and this the stakes are really high in financial services. Yeah, yeah no one, and there's no way to like if you need to verify every answer. That means that you're doubling your job, like, like your work. Like you have to ask, and then you have to verify. Which we're people, we're lazy, we won't. And then at the end, someone will make a mistake. Oh, the AI told me that that's probably not very good. <laughs> Blame it on the AI. Yeah, exactly. Dave, what do you, in your work with big brands, what are you hearing on the financial services side? Yeah, I mean, w within most companies, um, you know, large companies are like large countries, right? When you have that many people you know, inside an organization. And so you get a bell curve distribution, right? And, and here's what the, the, the social science tells us, right? There's about 16% of human beings are future focused. That when you, when confronted with something new, like, you know, chat GPT, they are, say, all right, we got to get going. Let's get moving, right? That, that's, and, and there are those people. There's another 14% inside, you know, any group of folks who are completely past focused. These are the people who, who, who say, you know, come on, Zach, Taxi cabs will never go away. Uber is just a blip. They're the folks who said, you know, you, you'll always want to walk into a corner branch and physically see a teller, right? And, and, what's a, and, and, and because their entire worldview is based on the past and what they've seen before. 70% of human beings, and this is true psychologically and, and many, you know, in academia, they run tests and, and folk, my teammates at Jump have, have done these studies as well. 70% of human beings are completely present focused. Right. So what does that mean? Their reaction is when you show them something new, they go, you're right. The world is changing, but we need to focus on this quarter. Right. And that's actually the worst of all three combinations. The past focused people, you can disprove the future focused people. They're, they're off to the races. They're going, but 70% of us accept the premise that the world is changing and we're driving over the cliff anyway. Right. We're, we're talking like the future focused uh, folks and acting like the past focused people. Right. And and that's why large companies run aground, because most of us, it, it's not a question of technology. It's, it's everything that Moses was talking about. It's adoption and effective use of that technology hindered by our own mindset. So, so this is almost uh, innovators dilemma or some type of institutional um structure that will that will make it hard for financial services really to adopt this based on 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 our human behavior right so you're saying if, if we're present focused we can't really begin to even spin the wheels because we're right here that's right i mean let, let, let's leave aside the more arcane parts of financial services like managing a hedge fund but let's take something that's a little bit more consumer facing so that everyone can understand let's you know how do you decide on your advertising spend right if you're if you're a large bank Right. And, and I, I know folks in, 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 in a few institutions who say we can now make those decisions better, right, using machine than what any human being could do. Right. But most most marketing execs still want to make the personal choice themselves. Right. And, and that's completely reasonable. This is, you know, BMW can drive a car better than I can, but I still want a manual stick shift. I don't know. It makes me feel like I'm driving. Right. That is the state of decision making in in most companies today. That's really interesting. Um, 
You know, we're also seeing in our interviews on this podcast, actually, um, new new forms of marketing executives coming through the ranks, particularly at fintech companies on the tech side, not on the banking side, but who are coming from engineering and, and really numbers focused. No exposure to branding or any of the soft skills that marketers have, um, but maybe that portends for, for a different type of executive. Moza, I'm curious to, to, to get your perspective for an industry... You know, particularly with the headwinds of this economy that's very focused on the here and now um, about earnings and quarterly results, how, 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 do, how do we encourage executives to start thinking about the potential of innovation here? I think that Dev is right. It's, um, if the in terms of the institute itself, you cannot change the behavior. If the institute is large enough, you cannot make that change. You have to address decision-making at very uh, high levels on the one hand, on the other hand, not too high. It's mid-high levels that have the um, um, the ability to actually take those decisions to the next step to budget them in and have the foresight to understand the value of those decisions. And that's usually where you target um, your buyers, if you will, in, in terms of adopting um, machine learning. Got it. I, I'd love to, to pick your brains both. Um, if we can start to, we, we mentioned KYC as sort of a, a you know, a, a first use case seems the, the, the most understandable and, and most practical. Maybe some other examples of how companies that are, that are using this opportunity in this economic downturn to innovate, just thinking about this here. I mean, evaluation of credit risk, right, is 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 the is right up there with KYC, right? It's is something that we can look at pretty quickly. Well, I mean, one of the things we talk about, at least for that example, is like sort of the hidden biases in in uh, in these types of things, right? Like Sydney might come out, you know, how do you know you're getting ChatGPT and not Sydney when they're saying about um, just looking at somebody's credit worthiness, right? I mean, there's there's I mean, this to me is like, I know it, it's sort of one of those topics that, that um, I don't know, I, I see people roll their eyes at, but like, it, it's a, to me, it's a big issue moving forward. It, it is a huge issue. I, I, I mean, and we're only talking about um, small matters, like whether you get a loan or not, right? It's, it's when we're, we're, we're using AI for things like criminal sentencing, right? That the real horror stories are coming out to say, no, this person, you know, like, or this person probably shouldn't, you know, like be up for parole. And then you discover later uh, that what the AI is just doing is deciding if you're black or not, mm -hmm. right? Those things are already happening today in, in more than a few instances. And so, wow. you know, we actually have to take a deliberate, you know, hand in, in saying, are the outputs of this, right? This is a good point on even before you get to a more sci-fi um, use cases of AI, even if you think about credit lines and the data that comes into the credit line, if your data is fed with a huge bias because it was taken from a cer certain area or socioeconomic state or a lot of things create that bias into the model that later no one will know. Hmm. And that means that basically you'll you'll have a niche feature that actually affects whether you'll get a loan or on your credit line or on whatever without creating a lot of visibility into the decision-making. The problem is when it's wrong. When it's right, everyone is happy. But when it's wrong, and sometimes even when it's right, it's right statistically, but you're saying, yeah, but we should not do that. Like the fact that you're, um, for example, you're asking for a loan at a certain branch 
that branch, the location of that branch, not very in a very good neighborhood. Statistically, you will not be able to basically pay back your loan. Statistically, it kind of makes sense. Would that should that affect the ability of you taking a loan just because he walked into the wrong branch? Mm. No. Statistically, yes, of course, it makes sense. So someone needs to create that visibility into the process and understand, oh, that's probably what's happening. We should stop that. Even though if you look at the numbers, perfect. And that's a huge risk. And that's usually the problem with adopting those models without understanding how they work. Yeah, Moses, this goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Which is that, you know, when the model is a black box, right? And you can only see inputs and outputs, right? And it is it is the nature of the technology that you cannot have any insight to the to the decision-making process in between. Right? All you can do is look after the fact and first hope and then verify uh, that you're not having these sort of distorting uh, effects in your decision-making. Exactly. I mean- one of the things we talk about, I mean, I mean, credit scoring is a, still a black box, you know, um, decades in. Um, I think we've done a better job as an industry, including uh, alternative data there, um, but it's still black box um, and it's still exclusionary. Um, I guess, I, I guess like if, if uh, extending credit is one of the first applications of, of generative AI. So is credit scoring too, right? I guess that's, that's the under thing. We'll be able to include more data points in, into the models, right? Yeah, absolutely. But this is the challenge, right? Because, you, you know, I want you to imagine your credit score dropped a hundred points. And so you're, 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 you're calling and, and you, you wait online three hours to actually get to a human being. And you say, why did my credit score drop, uh, you know, a hundred points? And they say, I don't know. So, well, I could talk to somebody who, who does know. And, and the real truth is nobody no, knows. Right. <laughs> computer says right. no. It's just a fancy <laughs> way of computer says no, which is horrible as yeah. the consumer. And imagine that is affected by something like the, the model Googled on you, like your, your social media account. Why would that affect me? And you have no idea that that's what's going on. But based on some statistical model, it has an effect. You're not aware of it. So imagine the, and the, these, uh, the data itself, it's all public. And the connection between your, ent like your real world entity and the social entity, that's not very hard to do. Yeah. Now, so that's I where mean, the risk is. Yeah. Uh, the counter argument, though, is that large groups of human beings are, are not necessarily any better either, right? I mean, the, the classic example, you know, in, in financial services is, is look at home ownership, right? Several decades ago in the United States, the gap in, in home ownership between white folks and black folks was huge. And so they said, why is this? Oh, people are being, you know, are di being discriminated against. So they put in all of these laws to make it illegal right, to do things like redlining, to make it illegal to withhold loans. And now you look a few decades later, and the gap is even larger. Wow. <laughs> so in the individual instance, people are, at least in principle, being less discriminatory. But the overall effect seems to be we've gotten worse. Yeah. I want to, I want to, Shift gears a little bit. This is maybe a personal predilection. Um, one of the themes we talk about a lot at Tearsheet is something we call embedded finance. And embedded finance is taking these same banking and payment tools 
that used to be the purview just of you know, legislated or regulated financial institutions and through APIs being able to embed them in, in, into other products that are outside of financial services. So classic example could be like QuickBooks, which small businesses use for their accounting. QuickBooks now can extend you loans. It can, there's a bank account associated with it. It can move money all without Intuit needing to get a banking license. And in a way, if banks really shy away from this, um, who's going to adopt generative AI other, other than tech companies first. And in a way, it, it may actually make it more, it may, they may, it may make them more competitive vis-a-vis -vis banks. Meaning if banks are slow to adopt this, can't do it. If the tech companies really can leverage this plus leverage embedded finance, they can, they can do what banks do better. I, is, am I, am I thinking about that correctly? Well, there are a few tech companies doing exactly that and they're doing wonderfully. Stripe is doing that. That's exactly yeah. their play, right? They are making API for you to basically, instead of working um, directly with a bank, you're working for, with them. That's terrific. That's right. I, I mean, think of it as there's maybe kind of three different classes of potential here, which is there's, uh, let's say you, you will be a better bank, right? You adopt these things, you work at it, you become a better. You say like, yeah, but you know, I don't really want to be a bank. I, I want all the benefits of being a bank. I don't want all the hassle. It's like, okay, fine. Well, then you can rent a bank on the back end, right? And rent a bank uh, on the back end is, you know, this is how did Apple launch a credit card, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, green dot Golden and sex, right? right? And then there's the third aspect that we're, you know, really one of the big implications of, of AI that we've been talking about, which is like, no, no, uh, you can buy a bank in a box, right? Just like a bank with all of its compliance structures, with all of, of its decision-making, all of its credit evaluation is, is actually a box that sits on a rack in your, uh, in your systems or something you can rent in the cloud, right? And that's you know what you start to get out of this is is you get potential for it just to be much easier. What's what's the biggest thing that gets in the way of any of of stage two or stage three? It's it's regulatory, right? It's it's like will the OCC allow this? Will the SEC allow this? Depending on the uh, uh, on the segment, right? And and but even even regulators are are learning and and moving along. I tend to fully agree, and and we can see the potential in the crypto world, which basically was a bank on a shelf, obviously with a huge risk attached without regulations on top or actually visibility, it's, it's even more important than that. Um, so in theory, it works. In practice, you really have to make sure that you're getting what you think that you're getting. Right. Got it. Right. I, I mean, there's something driving that, and crypto is a good comparator, right? Because there's people who are going to look at this AI and say, look, they're the same people who were selling me on crypto three years ago. And I'm selling me. <laughs> they're either bankrupt or in jail now. Yeah. Right, right, right. 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 But I mean, there, there's a, what is the, the fundamental difference underneath this? For myself personally, is, is I was very crypto skeptical. And the biggest reason comes from a place of, of just human need. The, the class I teach is called need finding. And I could not see, I've yet to see a, compelling use case for crypto if i'm not a criminal right <laughs> and, and, and it's just like nothing like oh my goodness there's something i couldn't do that is not true with what we're talking about with chat gpt right we, you know since december my brain has been firing of all the things i could be doing right all the needs i could be satisfying 
right? And not just in, yes, KYC compliance, credit evaluation, but just even in, 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 in basic customer experience matters. So maybe we can take that to move into our final questions. We're getting near the end of, of our time together. We've talked a lot about what could go wrong. Um, maybe we could talk about what could go right and maybe think about you know, what, what banking or financial services looks like five, 10 years down the road once they've figured out how to, how to harness it. And um, yeah, I mean, you guys have some thoughts there? Not positive ones. It's that's scary. It's that's that important. How that's... quickly this is adopted in five years, I don't think that we'll see an action. So, so maybe that's a corollary question. Like when, yeah, when when do you think that financial services, given its its needs uh, and its risk aversion, you know, when will these things begin to be commercialized? Yeah, I I mean, I would put an inverse on this, which is the advice I I have for execs in this space is don't try to predict the future. Right? Just get in the game and start experimenting and start learning, right? You'd be shocked. There are still, you know, like you'd be shocked at the number of, of, uh, of financial services companies where to do business with this organization, it requires you to get online, print out a form, fax it back into them, right? Fax, like, you know, like it's 1940, right? And, and or, or the number of times where you need a wet signature or the number of times where there's a financial service firm where their mobile app doesn't adequately replicate their experience of, of brick and mortar, right? Mm -hmm. So, so why? Like, why are, why are so many organizations finding themselves, themselves behind? Is because they spent a decade arguing about what's going to happen and why you need it or why you don't need it rather than saying like get started and experiment with it at a small scale so that you can keep up and learn at the same pace as the rest of us as we're doing it i think that connects to um like the 70 percent leaving the present it's basically we have more important things to care about especially these days and that means that there's never budget to actually build for the next phase. Just, oh, we'll wait until, I don't know, it, it stabilize or there is a status quo or some, some sort of, that will never happen with technology. You'll just get the next wave and the next wave. And this is how they end up with a lot of uh, tech debt, basically by doing very little. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, you're right. The Southwest Airlines, you know, their their meltdown in in December mm -hmm. was all a story of tech debt, right? That they like they just kept pushing out investment. Like every financial service firm in the world should look at what happened to Southwest and say, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." I, I think probably you know in the same way that uh, we talk a lot about partnerships at Tearsheet. Um, Outside of the, the biggest financial institutions, most of them are going to get technology advances through partnerships with, with tech firms as opposed to developing stuff in-house. I would assume this is going to be, the, this will be a similar model as well, right? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I can and, see a lot of uh, digital um, uh, or AI service company providing that additional level and capabilities for financial institutions. Uh, developing it in-house is not realistic. And actually, it's probably not very cost-effective as well. Mm -hmm. There are there there tend to be firms who are really great at partnering, and ones who are really great at, at optimizing and doing it. Themselves. You see this even in the technology space. Amazon historically has been really good at partnering with other mm -hmm. firms, right? And 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 they they followed that through all the way to OpenAI. Uh, um, 
sorry, with Microsoft, right? As opposed to Amazon, which is very much, you know, very good at doing it themselves. Right, right. right. But, and, um, and so it re- it's going to depend on what your company is great at. Are you great at partnering? Are you, are you great at copying what somebody else does? Just, you know, doing it faster, better, cheaper. Got it. Um, I've really got, my gears are going. I, I really enjoyed this conversation today. Um, maybe we can end with where, where if people want to um, hear more about what you guys are thinking about or following you guys, like where, where Dave, where can people find you? Um, what you're working on? Jumpassociates.com. We're actually gearing up for something we call the Jump Offsite, and we do that every year in Napa. That's coming up in May, and um, bringing together leaders to discuss exactly these kind of topics. Awesome. And Moses, what about you? Um, our website, clear.ml, or uh, look me up on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thanks, guys.